it's kind of built into our DNA in some basic way. I mean, I think we've been sitting around campfires telling each other tall tales since literally the, the dawn of time. Who has bases on the moon and are there any weapons on the moon? We're like, why would you want weapons on the moon and how would that work and how would that come about for the first time? What about, you know, competition in low Earth orbit? And all these kind of things are very uh, interrelated. And I think that the drive to achieve, the drive to explore new things, the drive to sort of go further, farther, faster than people have gone before pays huge dividends. I think it does something for the human spirit. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. This is the first in a special series of episodes where we look at the power of science fiction, the importance of storytelling, and the significance of narrative. We'll be talking to writers, creators, and authors who have a wealth of knowledge and experience in thinking about the future in unique ways. To kick off the series, we'll be talking today with Ronald D. Moore, writer and producer for Star Trek The Next Generation, The Reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, Outlander, and For All Mankind. He'll be talking with us today about world building, the importance of visioning the future, and how to be credibly creative. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Ron, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, pleasure to be here. So you're kind of a unique sort of guest. Primarily, our listenership is folks who are interested in military-related things, but we also cater to folks who are into emerging technology, the economy, things like that. But at Mad Scientist, we're always trying to expand our thinking outside of, of what we know. You've been a writer and a producer and, quite frankly, a visionary for some of the greatest science fiction shows of all time. And I'll just name off a few. Star Trek The Next Generation, the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. You've got Outlander. You've got For All Mankind. So I don't, I don't think it's a stretch or hyperbole to say you're more or less a legend in in science fiction at this point. Thanks. <laughs> and I didn't even get to your to your most famous role, local actor Ken Reynolds on Portlandia. <laughs> That's right. It's amazing how many people remember me for that. I mean, it's I I it was such a fun thing to do that Portlandia episode, but I'm still astonished like how many people say, "Oh my God." Portlandia that wants to see me. I'm like, oh yeah, Portlandia. <laughs> Truth be told, I got to Battlestar Galactica late. Those skits were what got me to watch Battlestar Galactica. Really? And yeah. I, I, I went through what they went through on, on, on the skit. I couldn't stop watching. So for our negligible sect of our audience that doesn't know much about you, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started on this path and how you got to where you are today? Uh, well, I came from a, uh, I originally come from a small town in central California called Chowchilla, which is sort of dead center of the state, a little cow town out of the middle of nowhere. Uh, my father was a Marine Corps uh, veteran who fought in the Vietnam War. Uh, he was an infantry officer. But we grew up in that small town, and I thought that I wanted to be a, a naval pilot or a Marine pilot and an astronaut, and then discovered that uh, you needed 20-20 vision, and I wasn't going to be a, a pilot anymore, so I decided I was going to be a lawyer. And I went to Cornell University on a Navy ROTC scholarship, basically got into ROTC for three years and discovered it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. Like I admired the military and read a lot about it and, you know, was 
really thought uh, thought I was going to do it for a while, and it just I, I was not a good fit into the organization. Let's put it that way. I don't like getting up early, and I really don't like taking orders from people. So those being the two primary qualifications, two of the primary qualifications, it wasn't a good fit. And then to top it all off, I was realizing that I. Uh, I really didn't want to be a lawyer either. I wanted to be Perry Mason. I wanted to make dramatic speeches in courtrooms and bang my table and object. And being a lawyer was spending long hours in law libraries and <clears throat> doing very dry papers. So by the time I was a senior, uh, I was deeply unhappy and uh, just stopped going to school, stopped going to ROTC, and the whole thing just kind of imploded, lost the scholarship, uh, flunked out of college, had to start life over. And eventually ended up in Los Angeles with my former roommate, who was uh, a film major. And he said, why don't you come to California with me and be a writer? Because you're, you're still at Cornell, you're not doing anything. And I said, sure. So I bought a one-way ticket to California, started sleeping on his floor in his studio apartment in Studio City, and started over. I had always written uh, stories and things growing up as a kid, but, uh, coming from Chowchilla, being a writer wasn't a real job. Like nobody I knew was an actual writer and that seemed like a fantasy. So I never took it seriously until I literally had nothing else. So then I was in LA for, uh, like three or four years, I took a series of odd jobs. I was an animal hospital receptionist. I was a messenger. I did personnel, I did contract administration. And then I started dating this girl which every good story has at some point. And she found out I was a Star Trek fan because I had these big Captain Kirk posters in my apartment. And she said, you know, I used to work on Star Trek The Next Generation and I still know people over there and I could get you a tour of the Star Trek sets. And I was like, oh my God, please, please, please make the call. So she made a call and sure enough, there was this regular tour they used to have of the Star Trek sets and at Paramount Pictures because there were so many people that wanted to see the sets. They finally had to say, okay, we'll do it like once a week. And my girlfriend got me on that tour. And she said, uh, okay, I made the call. It's, you're on the tour. It's in about six weeks. And I just decided to take a shot at that point. And I wrote an episode of The Next Generation, which at that point was in its second season. And I brought it with me and convinced the guy who was giving me the set tour to read it. And he turned out to be one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants, and he liked it. Gave it to the woman that became my first agent, submitted it to the show, sat in the slush pile of unsolicited scripts for about seven months. New executive producer came aboard at the beginning of the third season, uh, the late Michael Piller, and he found my script and bought it and asked me to do a second one. And I did that, and then he brought me on as a staff writer and I was there for the next 10 years. And it was a, an amazing you know, Cinderella story. And uh, I got very lucky and I had the right uh, script at the right time. And I loved Star Trek and I knew the show backwards and forwards. And I, I, was, pretty, I was ready to sort of jump in and, and write that, that show. And that, that's how my career started. Now, how often do you have regrets uh, that you didn't go for the big dreams of being a Navy lawyer? <laughs> There's still a part, you know, it's funny. It's still a part of me that, feels a sense of failure about that. I still have dreams about that failure, about going about, you know, not being uh, at class on time or, you know, being late to test. So those kind of, you know, classic dreams that people have about school. And there's a part of me, there's a twinge that bugs me that I never got to wear the gold stripe of an ensign. And I never got to, I never had that, that, that ticket never got punched in my head. And uh, it was such a part of my upbringing. Like I said, my dad was a Marine veteran and uh, so there was a part of me that always regrets 
that I didn't do that, even though if I had clearly the, the, the life I have now could not have taken place. We, we neglected to inform you that Luke is prior Navy. Oh, is that right? So the story you just told is is fascinating. And I read part of it um, as I was doing my research for the show. And it, it really is kind of amazing. I mean, that's that's the thing you, you see acted out in movies or, you know, the kid in the band needs to send his tape into the record company and they end up giving him a record deal. Um, I, ju- I just find that journey so fascinating. So, so talking about your time in ROTC, um, you were on the USS WS Sims, is that correct? Yeah, that was my uh, my summer my first uh, summer cruise was on the WS Sims out of out of Mayport, Florida, uh, for a month or six weeks or whatever it was. Did that have any impact or influence on how you write? Because both Star Trek: The Next Generation and Battlestar have some of the the best depictions of command and control realistic command and control that I've ever seen in, in television series. Did, did that influence you at all? Oh, definitely. I, my exposure to all of that, you know, was something as I was writing scripts for yeah, Trek and for Battlestar, I remembered all those little details. You know, there, there's a, a beat at the beginning of the Battlestar miniseries where they're just walking down the corridor and you hear this overhead voice or someone on the PA system saying, um, Men working outside, you know, do not write, rotate or radiate any electronic equipment while, you know, men are working outside. I, that was something I remember on the WSMs, them just playing over and over again, like all day. It was just like one of those background details I, I, I really enjoyed bringing to the show. But yeah, it was like when I was on that ship and, it went, and when I did the, the sophomore cruise, you know, when you went to, I was, so I went to Pensacola for a week and Cherry Point for a week and I was on the USS Seahorse for a week and, uh, you know, being exposure to the different, uh, different uh, branches like that of the Navy and, and soaking up just kind of how things were done and how people interacted with each other. And then I could kind of see how the details were always kind of off in film and television in one way, shape or form. And so when I was doing Trek and Battlestar, I just wanted to bring more of that, of, of the verisimilitude to it, to things that I kind of remembered how it was really done and how people kind of interacted with each other and, you know, what were the kind of small rituals and traditions that sort of, you know, defined their days and sort of how they thought about their jobs and their lifestyle. And, and I, I just wanted it to kind of have a little bit more of that that truth to it. Yeah, I think that's an important part of, of the world building process. And to me, world building really, that's kind of the deciding factor whether or not I can relate to what's being on the screen. And I think both of those shows, you really felt like what you were seeing was was true and accurate. Um, so, so let's start talking about kind of your process. How do you think about the future when you're writing for these shows? What, what's your writing process look like? How do you vision, you know, an, an environment that, that doesn't exist yet? Do you break down your focus between technology, social issues, culture, government? What's it look like? Well, one, I find that one thing always implies another. So when, when I was starting out to do Battlestar, for instance, you know, and I was looking at the original series and how do I want to re- revisit this? The first step was, well, I'm going to strip out all the things that don't work and try to take it back to this really great core idea of uh, this apocalyptic attack that wipes out the human race. And then the survivors are protected by essentially an aircraft carrier and, and a bunch of civilian ships you know, along the way. So then let's start thinking about what this says about this society. Okay. There's 12 colonies. Let's keep that part of the thing. All right. And what level of technology do they have? Is this going to be a Star Trek kind of universe? Um, once we sort of start talking about the Cylons and the Cylons as robots that were created by the colonists and that they'd had a war about this, it felt logical to then say, well, after that war, they're probably going to be really afraid of technology or they're going to be wary of technology at, the, at, at, at least. 
So then you start saying, well, then maybe they're not going to network their computers together. Oh, well, if you're not doing that, and if you're not having this really high-tech computer, Galactica has to sort of function in somewhat archaic ways. It has to have these sort of anachronistic things, you know, phones with cords on them and, and printouts, and because they're purposely holding themselves at a certain level of technology. And then socially, I started thinking, well, there's names in the original Battlestar Galactica that are clearly coming from the Greek and Roman gods, you know, Apollos and Athenas and things like that are all through it. Then there's signs of the Zodiac. So there's some sense of religion in this society. And it seems to be based in sort of a polytheistic society of many gods. So let's hang on to that. So that's kind of telling me something about this society. They're polytheistic. They're holding their technology at a certain level. They still have a recognizable military. Well, what's the kind of governmental structure that they're going to have? And I wanted to play thematically uh, relevant stories that had to do with what was happening in, in, a, in, my, in my world at that point in time, which is right around, you know, post 9-11, war in Afghanistan, the beginnings of the war in Iraq. So it was purposeful to then, okay, I'm going to have a recognizable president and that operates like the president we kind of understand in our constitutional system. But the original Galactica has this quorum of 12. It's representing the 12 colonies. Well, what does that imply? That implies some kind of federal structure to their government where maybe it's there's not really a Congress per se and a legislative branch, but there's some kind of federal role that all the colonists seem to have sort of glommed onto and that in an emergency situation certainly like this that the federal umbrella would sort of rule it all so it, it's it's sort of that process of just kind of logically walking through all the different aspects of the society as i was as i was building it out and and it's sort of a similar approach when you're creating a science fiction universe from scratch it's like okay what's the style of show i want to tell here if you're doing something like star wars and you're telling a big space opera, but you want certain fantasy elements in it, and by that I mean there's a mystical power called the Force, then you start talking about, okay, how does the Force work within the confines of the science fiction universe? What are sort of its limitations? Who can do it? Who can't? And you just kind of keep walking through those those questions and answers as you, as you build out the world. And it's kind of the part of the process I, I enjoy really the most. I love world building and sort of glomming onto historical examples and analogies and, and alternate history points of view of, well, if, what if it was a communist society that developed slightly differently and it looked more like this than that? And it, it's, it's a really fun exercise when you're for, for someone like me. I think that's really fascinating because there's a lot of things that we can take from that. So, so in our day jobs, what we're trying to do for the army is kind of write the operational environment that the soldiers are going to train to more or less. So we're projecting out alternate futures, obviously that don't exist based on the information we have now. And exactly what you said there is kind of what we do and we can learn from from the process you just described, have our starting point. Obviously, ours is going to be probably a little closer grounded to reality, but have that starting point and then think, okay, if this, then that. And especially uh, your reference to how you came up with the, the environment for Battlestar Galactica, we're looking at things like that. We're anticipating, you know, a comms degraded environment that soldiers will have to uh, operate in. And what what's that going to look like? How are they going to how are they going to communicate? How are they going to maneuver? Do things like that. So I think that I think that's a really fascinating way um, to translate what science fiction is doing into what we can actually use on the army side. This series of science fiction podcast episodes that we're doing is all about storytelling and the power of storytelling. In your opinion, why is storytelling so important? 
Oh, you know, it's, um, it's kind of built into our DNA in some basic way. I mean, I think we've been sitting around campfires telling each other tall tales since literally the, the dawn of time. And there's just something about the power of narrative that inspires us, that scares us, that makes us laugh. And we want to hear stories. You know, as soon as you meet somebody, you catch up with each other and you basically tell each other a story about what you've been doing that day or what you've been doing in the years since, since you've seen them. So we're just story driven people as a race. Like we like the act of telling story and we like the act of listening to story. And it allows us to think about really complex abstract ideas in very sort of specific uh, concrete ways. Our regular listeners to this podcast will know that uh, one of the things I always harp on, um, no matter what topic we're talking about, is that essentially c- communication is almost the the most important factor. Um, it, it doesn't matter what problem we're talking about or what problem we're trying to solve. Usually, you can solve most problems through communication, and that's kind of that's exactly what storytelling is. How do we get information from one person to another? Your your most recent show now for all mankind depicts an alternate history where we've lost the space race to the Soviets. They land on the moon first. So, oh, by the way, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the show yet. I'm gonna, I'm going to get deep into the plot points here. Um, because of that, it sets off a chain of events that eventually leads to us and the Soviets establishing an outpost on the moon. And that's the Jamestown outpost. And I, I call that out because Jamestown's about 20 minutes up the road from here. And the interaction and reaction um, to the Soviets, who are a strategic competitor of ours, uh, that's a form of competition. And we're experiencing competition right now in modern day when we deal with both Russia and China. Do you think there's any lessons we can take from that alternate history that might mirror what's going on today with our strategic competitors and how we might be able to better navigate that? It's that there is an inevitability to the competition and the sort of the desire of superpowers in particular to compete for resources, to compete for prestige, you know, no, no matter what the, the the playing field is. And I think sometimes we underestimate uh, the value of prestige, you know, the, the space race in particular was really uh, about, you know, prestige. It was about how we thought of ourselves and being, being first in space or first on the moon. What does it really mean on some basic level? It's about, you know, what it means to be number one. It, it's what it means to be, you know, to have more technological prowess and to do something amazing that the whole world sits back and marvels at in our alternate timeline, when the Soviets get to the moon first, we posit that it does have a huge domino effect in how the Soviet Union is perceived thereafter, and that it affects geopolitics and how long the Warsaw Pact is going to be around, and how it affects you know the, the unaligned movement. And it just kind of resets the table because it pr- pretty much says the Soviets are a major force, that America is not the technological be-all and end-all of the world, and that the Soviets keep beating them, just keep beating the U.S. in space over and over again, and that the race to the moon was the ultimate achievement of that. And I think there is something about something true today that says, you know, if these these quote-unquote symbolic acts and these sort of, you know, PR events that people say are, are meaningless really do have meaning, that they really do affect how people's perception and that it changes culture and culture can change politics. You know, in one of our episodes in the first season, uh, one of the astronauts' wives comes back from Europe, I think she says, and everyone, all the, all the teenagers in, in, in London are wearing hammer and sickle t-shirts. 
And that's a silly little like aside, but it also says something about where culture was moving and that in it, and when culture moves like that and people start thinking about the Soviet Union in a different way like that, it would shift the political equation and it would, and it would affect the strategic you know, uh, imperative on either side. And it would ultimately affect security and, you know, where the Soviet Union is going and how the United States is responding to that, uh, I think would be affected. In some ways, season two is all an outgrowth of that. The season, second season of For All Mankind moves, you know, this, the, the Cold War front and center into the, uh, the space competition. But it's really driven there in large part because the Soviets got there first and then the United States felt compelled to compete there and 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 then that and then you know then there's a follow-on military component to that and then people there's a security interest and who has bases on the moon and are they going to be are there going to be weapons on the moon well like why would you want weapons on the moon and how would that work and how would that come about for the first time and what about you know competition in low earth orbit and all these kind of things are very uh, interrelated i think no absolutely and i, I think that's an important point and on, on that show, um, Deke Slayton says, if we fail in our mission today, the U.S. will turn away from space, turn away from the future. Why do you think it's important for the nation to be future focused? Well, because that's where we're all going to live and that's where our kids all live. And I think, you know, we've lost focus on space and what, what it can be in reality. And I think, you know, we're sort of a poor nation and a poor world because of it. And I think that the drive to achieve the drive to explore new things, the drive to sort of go further, farther, faster than people have gone before pays huge dividends. I think it does something for the human spirit. I'll admit when I was watching the the first season as I was doing research for the show, I, I felt that same way. I mean, I was watching this and watching them land on the moon and then um, have uh, the core of women who they made it as, as astronauts and then the moon base. And I was thinking to myself, Man, why aren't why aren't we going back to the moon? Why aren't we building bases and doing all this stuff? So that that really did work. I was super motivated. Good. Yeah, I mean, I it was the dream of the space program I grew up with. You know, I grew up in the seventies, and I saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, and I was captivated and wanted and f- watched as many of the moon missions as I could, and then anything with a spaceship, I would watch, which is what led me to Star Trek. But I, you know, at the time. You just thought all these things were possible. I just thought it was a matter of time before we were going to get moon bases and we we're going to go to Mars and do all this stuff. And, and then it was just heartbreaking to watch the program get cut back and cut back and cut back every year. And the ambitions lower and lower and lower to the point where it was just the space shuttle was an amazing piece of technology, but it was basically just a truck. It's just a truck that was going to go up into orbit and come back down. And that's all it was. And, and I, I couldn't believe that was as as, as ambitious as we got for decades. I think that's a really good point. And in that same vein, I think that, you know, science fiction really allows us, um, as you were talking about, kind of see what could be. So, you know, two of the, two of the major shows that you worked on, Star Trek was this really more optimistic um, outlook on what the future could be. And I think um, and the original Star Trek being such a such a turning point for the nation in terms of imagining that um, and this future global government and and seeing the the first um, interracial kiss on on TV and this very optimistic um, whereas Battlestar Galactica, I wouldn't say is is negative, but somewhat this more pessimistic of what happens with the technological backlash. Um, what does it What does it mean to be human? Um, and a lot of questions like that. And and in that vein, you know, how important do you think science fiction is when it comes to shaping and driving societal change? Not necessarily just reflecting those things, but actually changing 
hearts and minds, for lack of a better term. Well, I think it's important. I think it does give us an idea of what the future might be. And then we can either you know, recoil from that. You know, if, if the future is Terminator or if the future is Blade Runner, you kind of go, whoa, well, what are the things I can learn from that in my day-to-day life? And, you know, as, as I watch society change and, you know, AI develop and all this kind of stuff, isn't there something I should be worried about? Shouldn't we think about some of the implications and some of the ethical issues around around artificial intelligence? Or if it's like Star Trek and Star Trek is offering you this optimistic, idealistic vision of what can be, it can inspire you to try to make it happen. And over the many years of my career, I've, I've met a lot of people who joined NASA or became engineers specifically because they were inspired by Star Trek because they, they, they believed in that future and they wanted to be part of making it happen. And I think that's real world change. And they, they wanted to make it happen because they believed that there was something better to achieve and that they could get there through the space program. Absolutely. And for the Army, for the Department of Defense, how can we use science fiction best to um, to our advantage to try and you know pursue the goals of the nation? Well, I think it, you know science fiction provides an opportunity to really think you know outside the box, as they say. I mean, it's really sort of shaking up conventional ways of thinking and challenging assumptions and making you really stretch your imagination because I think. Uh, one of the lessons I read in military history over and over again is is the unexpected thing that happens. I've read uh, uh, At Dawn We Slept a couple of times, and I, and I read it again within the last year. And it's it's just the, the failure of imagination is what just kept coming up over and over again the, the, in the lead up to the attack. You know, the, the Army and Navy planners knew it was a theoretical possibility, but they couldn't take the imaginative leap to think that it would really happen. It really seemed like a piece of science fiction, for lack of a better term, that the Japanese Navy could pull off something on this magnitude. So science fiction, I think, should develop that muscle in you that kind of says, this may sound crazy, or this, but is it crazy? And you know, what are the things that could really happen to us? And what are the things we could actually do that are not outside the given conventional, here's what the planners say, here's what history says, and that you know, you, you confine yourself to just imagining this. Same thing with 9-11 was, you know, it was an unimaginable thing that happened, but somebody imagined it. And somebody pulled it off. So it's really about, I think, science fiction. If you if you read a lot of it and you you watch a lot of it, I think it does sort of help your brain develop in thinking in unusual and unconventional ways that might help you to imagine future attacks and also imagine future advantages that you could take. We really appreciate that because we use science fiction through the program and bring you know, folks such as yourself on and, and sci-fi authors that we've had on to try and break the paradigms a little bit to, to get senior leaders and, and people who have been steeped in military culture for decades a lot of times to think differently than the way they've they've been involved. I mean, we have we have war fighters and commanders who have been fighting, you know, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism for decades now and that's kind of all they know um in a sense so how do we break their paradigms to think differently about that and sci-fi is such a useful tool Uh, on the podcast we have um a pretty wide audience but a lot of times uh, we try to think about the future and thinking about really the next generation as well kind of what you talked about our our kids uh in the future and, and what does that mean um what advice would you have for the next generation of writers and storytellers? Why should they want to pursue this field? I think you get to pay, play a much bigger game of what if, you know, for me. 
it's fine to tell, you know, conventional stories and to talk about, you know, our day-to-day reality and our, there's plenty of drama in our actual lives, you know, especially recently, you had to go around, but it's fun and it's interesting to sort of take bigger and bigger imaginative leaps and ask a much bigger game of what if, what if technology allowed you to do this? What if history was slightly different? What if, you know, human consciousness could suddenly do this? And what are the, the moral implications of that? And I think it's just, it, it's just it's challenging your imagination in much bigger ways. And I just think uh, it's an incredibly fertile ground for a storyteller and to, for artists to, to play in because there's really no limit to uh, on the imaginative things you can come up with. I think that's, I think that's a great answer. And, and we love our science fiction writers here at Mad Scientist. Um, we're obviously this, this whole series that we're doing here is centered around that and centered around storytelling within science fiction. Um, I just think it's, I think it's so important. And I think it's something we need to integrate better into what we're doing. Um, so, so Ron, we're going to transition now from the main questions to our rapid fire questions. We, we have the same three questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, the first one is, is there a technology or a trend that keeps you up at night? Certainly the spread of nuclear technology worries me and, and nuclear weapons still, you know, I think part of it is just my bias is growing up in the, in the shadow of the cold war and Armageddon. And, you know, I was, uh, that was something I was really interested in and afraid of in the seventies and the eighties. And if, I'd continued as a Navy lawyer or, or somehow in the defense establishment. I was, I wanted to specialize in, in Soviet American relations because of that. And I'm still worried about the ability for people to get their hands on nuclear technology and, and, and to use it. And I still worry about that. And I think that I hope that all the powers that be are still like really, really scared about that and keeping an eye on it. Cause it does feel like it's fallen out of the popular converse, not the popular conversation, but the, the general conversation about threats seem to be much more pedestrian and, and conventional, I guess is a better word. And in terms of terrorism, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, conventional threats, to the population, but the nuclear threat is still just so profound. And I think in some ways, the further we get from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the less real it becomes. And, and sort of you, people start you know, debating or throwing around ideas of tactical nuclear weapons or what, you know, what, what a limited exchange would be like. And I think we've kind of, we're so far removed from, from the scale, the real horror of those events were that I, I do still worry about that probably more than anything else. This next question is going to be difficult for someone who has a Wikipedia page, but what's something about you that most people might not know? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's like Wikipedia, you know, it's like all this stuff gets around pretty much. I mean, I love to read. I'm a bit of a military historian. I love bad movies and bad TV shows. You know, I don't know how many times I've seen Showgirls because it's just like one of the worst films ever made. And that makes it a piece of art on some level. So I, I really enjoy watching really bad shows or tv shows sometimes over and over again you know if i'm in a bad mood and i put on i put on roadhouse i, I know it's gonna it's gonna pick me up and i'm gonna feel better by the end of it Th- that this segue couldn't have happened any better so uh, and it, you know it's funny you bring up showgirls because it's so strange that the director of total recall and um starship troopers ha- has that sandwiched in there but i know that's how it is so this this is the final question here what's your favorite movie oh lawrence of arabia it's it's brilliant beyond compare it's it's such a special movie to me i'll watch it i try to watch it like once a year and i'll set aside time for it i don't want to be interrupted i'm gonna if i if if i'm lucky enough and it's playing in a movie theater i'm absolutely going but i'm always trying to put it on the biggest screen and i'm cranking the sound up and it's just an unbelievable piece of cinema it's such an intense 
intimate character story of that man and yet it's this huge epic and this the, the scale is is enormous and the you know the cinematography and the music and the, the casting and everything about it is brilliant but at the heart of it, it is such a fascinating story of this man and his relationship with war and his relationship with the arab people and his own sense of identity and it's just it's an amazing amazing film i can't i can't high, recommend it highly enough to anyone who's never seen it yeah i was going to say if there's one movie that you would use as an exemplar to define epic as a film that would probably be it uh, so ron i really appreciate you coming on and and i joked with my friend when i when i told him that you were going to come on the show i said ron's coming on he said oh you call him ron um, but I officially do now. You've given me permission. So uh, yes, you do. That, that is in the truth. That's in the history books now. We really appreciate you coming on uh, in, in this science fiction series of episodes that we're doing. We are honored to have you. Um, happy to have been able to talk to you and have the Army learn from, from what you've done and what you have to say. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. And I, I, hope, I hope it's useful to you and to anyone who's, who's listening in the United States Army. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Ronald D. Moore, for talking with us today. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.